were just thinking about the way what you mentioned about ideals, um, how even ideals are, are um, spread implicitly and, and, and learned and absorbed from young people. That's right. Like a sponge. Um, yeah. I remember in, uh, a few years ago I went to Morocco and something I saw there, I spoke to a sheikh who has some connection with the country and I said, I, I bet that young people in Morocco have a, um, uh, the, the, the developed arsenal. And he said, why do you say that? It's true. <laughs> why do you say that? I said, because I noticed in the hotel and I checked that there was one of these free TV channels in, and it was coming in the hotel that all it does is play the latest Hollywood blockbuster films that aren't even out in the UK. I noticed that, you know, they might be um, not out here, but they're playing it, just one film after the other, after the other, after the other, the latest film blockbuster films. And there are a few of these free channels. Right? And it's just so um, insidious, the kind of... Um, the messaging that's being broadcast is not necessarily with a you know, cynical kind of malicious intention, but we know that Shaitan is there in the background trying to you know, um, replace young people's ideals with ideals of a different culture, different civilization, different ideology. And I'm just wondering if are we addressing them? Because we, we're very careful to make sure people, young people, pray and fast and do the overt kind of Islamic uh, identity things as well as ticking the box. But what about the, the deeper kind of what do I regard as beauty, as ugly? What do I regard as appropriate, uh, as inappropriate? What do I regard as good and, and wrong, right and wrong? I mean, how do you go about trying to not just shield your young people, your children, your your old teachers, right? You you'll have classes, you have your old parents, you have so on. Not just shielding them, but trying to replace good, replace them with with good. Um, role models with good messaging, with good implicit learning, without them feeling this kind of double life. Because they're going to see the implicit, they're going to absorb the implicit learning, the ideals. The key aspect of implicit education is that it has to be in a homogenous environment, meaning that it's something which the child experiences all the time from everywhere, and that's what makes it implicit. Um, uh, someone living in, um, for example, the village called Rawton, which is where I grew up, outside of Swindon in Wiltshire, southwest England, um, everybody spoke in a certain way. And people did things in a certain way. And people went to the pub. Of course, I didn't. My parents didn't, because my father was Pakistani, my mother was Jewish. Um, as my mother always used to say, we're not, you're not like those people outside. We're not like these shiksas. Shiksa is a Yiddish word for Christian people. You know, we're not like these shiksas. We don't go to the pub. We don't do that. So why was it necessary for my mother to incorporate this sort of thing? Because it wasn't a homogenous environment. She was trying to hold on to something that was from her heritage and pass it on to her children 
and it wouldn't be something that they would experience elsewhere. So when your a child and a family is in, is in this uh, heterogeneous, heterogeneous environment, an environment where there are different ideas, different ideologies, different cultures, it becomes necessary to move that learning away from implicit learning into explicit. So the, ch the parents actually need to say to the children, this is what goodness is, this is not good, this is pleasing to Allah, Allah loves this, Allah Ta'ala does not like that because it then needs to become explicit. One way that we have, as a, a community have tried to, tried to do that is to make, maybe make our own bubbles of homogeneous kind of communities or a Muslim school or a kind of um, you know, a ghetto yeah, in that way. Um, do you think that's Rasul uh, Sahel or shaking your head saying? No, I'm not shaking out disagreement. I just think the word ghetto has very negative connotations, social deprivation, um, uh, you know, crime, all these kind of issues. There's nothing wrong with having these kind of um, bubbles to charge the iman. So, you know, Islamic schools, madrasas, of course, the home environment. Mm -hmm. As long as there's a recognition that they are going to have to go out into the big wide world. You know, culture is something almost like the atmosphere. It's absorbed. There is no such thing as closing off and cutting off completely from the wider society. That simply won't work. Uh, all you're doing is storing up a problem for later. That when they do step out into that big wild world, they haven't got the tools to manage those relationships. And they're often overwhelmed. You know, so the, how do we do that? How do we give them the tools to manage there is, there is a precedent for maintaining a bedrock. Um, the Rasul said, Remove the Jews and the Christians from the Arabian Peninsula. Now, one of the reasons for that being the case is that there needed to be a place which remained pure to the, the Islam which was sent to the Prophet and practiced by him and taught to his companions. They needed to be a place that could remain as a reference point that needed to be there. And it was understood that there were going to be people um, within the extended Islamic state who are people of Dhimma, protect of a protected status from amongst the Jews and the Christians and the Majus, that there would be people from other faiths or no faiths that would be within the Islamic state um, upon Mustatmanun. Uh, they would be given security, for, you know, like visas nowadays, right? They would be within the community for whatever reason they, they were there for. So it was understood that people would interact with others. Even the wisdom, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَحِلَّ لَكُمْ طَعَامُ He said, وَحِلَّ لَكُمْ طَعَامُ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ That I have made halal for you, legal for you, the food of the people of the book. You know, why would Allah ta'ala mention that? It's understanding that Muslims will necessarily have contact with non-Muslims. And part of contact is trade and commerce, and it's also social. It's also social. So part of social meetings is the sharing of food. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clarified before the event would happen that you were allowed to sell your food to those people and you're allowed to buy their food and you're also allowed to have social interaction with them. And then he continued afterwards, and their women are also lawful for you. Again, it's to do with social interaction. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that there are forms of social interaction which are permissible for you, and this is how you do it. But there also needs to be that place of reference which is pure. So it is important that, you know, as Muslims, we keep certain places as a point of reference. 
so that our children and we even ourselves, mm. we have something to go back to and look towards and then quote from. Mm. But that doesn't stop us also being active members of society and expanding our reach. You know, as, as the brothers, as uh, Abu Hanifa was saying, uh, that we children need to have the tools to interface with society. People need to go, know how to go out. Now, why did Allah Ta'ala tell us about the creed of the Jews and the Christians and, and the people that say there's, you know, there's no life after death and the mushrikim? Why would he inform us of these things in such detail? So that we can interact with them. So that we actually have a basis, a point of reference, that when we meet someone who's not like us, we have a starting point. We have a point of, a point of discourse. And that's very different to maybe sometimes we, how we approach these things with our children because almost as though you know, don't mention any doubtful thing or don't mention any doubt someone might have in an Islamic kind of creedal issue. The Qur'an is full of arguments of the mushrikeen, of the, you know, um, Zoroastrians, of Christians and Jews. Um, and it mentions, it mentions these things proudly as though it, it, there's no doubt that can ever, you know, come close to the, the level of, of truth and certainty in those things. And, I think absorbing that kind of confidence that you can speak about those doubts, you can speak about those questions that might come up, those arguments that will, you know, that we, we our children will face from outside, um, or even a whisper from shaitan, you can speak about those things and speak them with a level of confidence that, oh yeah, and they say this. But the way in the Quran, the way it's mentioned in the Quran, it's almost as though, even sometimes, you know, uh, let them play. Let them waste time, let them you know, argue amongst themselves. Not that, oh my God, this is, you know, how do I answer this question? But it's that confidence that I think we, we really need to address in our, not just the young people, but ourselves as well, and how we approach these things. Dr. Uthman, how, so how do, you, how do you propose we instill confidence as an ideal, confidence in Islamic kind of identity in their Muslim skin, right? their self-image. You mentioned Instagram, con con uh, compare and despair. Um, I mean, studies show that young women in particular, they take to social media when feeling depressed, when feeling anxious, when feeling uh, lonely, uh, more so than uh, boys, right? Uh, young women in particular, they suffer from uh, a whole host of mental health issues and difficulties now. Um, body consciousness, uh, self-image, right? Um, the, these these unattainable standards of beauty, and now you throw the whole hijab stuff into the mix. Uh, it's very difficult for our young young sisters. Yeah, uh, I think it's true. I think it's it's going to begin start with something from a young age. I think at the same time you have young girls more susceptible to self-harm, you know, mm. because of these factors, because of things like trauma or abuse or bullying, but also because of lack of self-confidence and esteem within themselves because they can't attain the unattainable. Uh, cutting their skins, you know, self-harming, bulimia, anorexia are quite common sometimes uh, in, in young girls, and I think it's a, it's a big problem. Um, one thing that we try to do, you know, with my, I have a five-year-old daughter, and so <coughs> what I do, and I, because of concern about bullying and cases of bully side and there's kids who are much younger now who are resorting to claim themselves because of bullying. Um, so every morning when my daughter leaves you know, for school, we make it a practice in our home that I would say, and she wouldn't leave the house until I say to her, I have to say to her, I, I am beautiful. She says, I am beautiful. 
you know. I am strong, he says, I am strong. I say, I am kind, he says, I am kind. As I am uh, smart, I'm, smart. I'm clever, I'm clever. Then at the end, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Muslim. We hug them and she goes to school. And it's because there might be someone in school who says, well, you're, not, you're, not, you're not pretty, <laughs> you're ugly. There might be someone in school. But at least then she knows from the father, she left her home and the father told her that I am beautiful and I am smart and I am clever. And so I think it's about really uh, in, uh, engendering within them a sense of self-confidence in themselves that they are they are wonderful, you know. Mm. At the same time, however, not to become narcissistic, you know. Yeah, because that's, that's the... That's the problem, yeah. So therefore, in, in seeing beauty in others, you know, in seeing beauty in others, the Prophet in Medina, he was, the Prophet's wife, um, she asked him about Abdullah ibn Jud'an. These were people, of course, there were some people in the before Islam who were known for doing good things, you know, in society. Ibn Jud'an, Mut'im ibn Adi was one of them afterwards. Um, feeding the poor and even even help the Prophet you know, in, mm. in the boycott, um, <coughs> and, and these people they were kind of the, the ideal was was celebrated. That ideal was worthy a worthy ideal that they did help. And the Prophet says in Badr he says, mm-hmm. if he was alive, they would free these prisons because of him. You know, mm. giving reverence and respect to others outside of the Islamic framework, but but seeing therefore the the uh, kind of the, the merging of, of similar ideals of, uh, of, you know, of kindness and these things that I think are important. And I think it's important also because then our kids can see the, the broader framework of, of humanity, right? Yeah. So we're not saying that uh, Muslims are the only ones who, who demonstrate positive ideals. Our thing is about in the Mal'amal bin Niyad, you have to have the intention for seeking Allah's praise, you're doing it for Akhirah, you love it for, you're doing it for Allah's sake, you're not doing it for kind of a just a kind of uh, a self-reason or mm. whatever. Um, but I think it's very important that we give our children kind of these, these paradigms. You know, I think uh, I, what I did with my, my children is I, we spoke about the, the Komsiluk. The Komsiluk was an ideal in, um, in the genocide in Bosnia. So uh, it's something that the, the, the very few, marginally speaking, you know, resistors of, of genocide held on to in difficult times that we have to think about our responsibilities towards our fellow man about rescuing life and not taking life or about we spoke about the um, the visa of Albania in the Holocaust and the Muslims of Albania held on to this code of uh, of self-sacrifice over self-interest and frugality over greed mm. um, and I think they found it amazing that this is kind of something in, in a different kind of a landscape um, but it's where Islam was always you know, always pra- practicable, you know, in society, I think it's kind of quite inspiring, you know, for young in, people. important to make them feel confident and look, yeah. this is what their Islam Absolutely. did. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you mentioned in the, in the past in uh, Rwandan genocide. Rwandan, well. yes, it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, when it comes to Rwanda, uh, so I, again, I was in Pakistan, and so, uh, now they, they <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even a talking point about Rwanda, but it had, I spoke about Rwanda before, and they made a note on the sheet and they said, please speak about Rwanda, <laughs> like, you know, as if this is, we all need to learn about Rwanda. And I think it's oh. a big story. I was with Sister Lauren Booth, we, we, a conference was on Africa and Islam. And so I spoke, she, sp- uh, she spoke after I spoke, and she, and she said, uh, she said, it's amazing, you know, you spoke about genocide of Rwanda, because she said last week or the week before, I gave a talk on Islam in Africa. I think it was like an Africa th- event thing. And she said, uh, and after my talk, she said these two young ladies came to sit next to me, you know, wearing hijabs. 
and they said, Sister Lauren, Jazakallah khair, very beautiful talk about Islam in Africa, you know. And they said, uh, we are two sisters from Rwanda. And she's, this is what she said, Lauren Booth, to the audience. She said, the, the girl said to me, we have the most amazing story to tell the world, but no one wants to hear it. Oh, no. <laughs> this is what the Muslims did, Allah Akbar. You know, I think it's one of the greatest human stories, Muslim stories, I think, in the last 50 years of what happened in Rwanda, Allah Akbar. And I think when I tell young people that story, my own children and other young children, mm. it's really awe-inspiring because they think Muslims, it was not like what we 400 years ago story, which was all great stories, but it's something contemporary, mm. that Islam was practical. We did something based on Islamic guidelines. Mm. And, uh, and it's a beautiful thing, I think, to mm -hmm. generate that within children, you know. So, briefly, what did, what, what did the Muslims do then? Because people are, people are wondering. I thought you all knew what happened. <laughs> Just for the benefit of some people over there. <laughs> Obviously, we know. I think they all know. It's just for you, brother. So in 90 days, this is from, from April 1994 to July 1994, so 100 days, up to 100,000 people were killed in, in the Rwanda genocide. And so an airplane carrying late presidents of Rwanda and Burundi was shot down. You had a colonial tension between tribes in Rwanda. You have three main tribes, the Hutus and Tutsis and the Zwa. The Zwa are very small, but Hutus and Tutsis are majority tribes. Um, now, they're both, of course, Africans, and they both speak African language, and they're, they're both black. Um, you know, but, but one is uh, taller and thinner, and the other is shorter and more plump. Uh, other one has like, you know, straight hair, the other one has kind of more fluffy hair. Um, one is lighter in skin, the other one is darker. And so the Belgian colonists used this to their mm. advantage in that they pitted the lighter skinned ones against the darker, as they did in Congo and other places as well. Um, and this went on for a very long time, you know, in, in Rwanda. Uh, and so when the president's plane shot down, it gave them the chance uh, for the, uh, the, the darker-skinned, what they thought, the darker-skinned disenfranchised to take revenge against the lighter-skinned ones, okay? The Hutus against the Tutsis. And so it just became carnage. And so almost overnight, the country sent into this complete, complete frantic chaos and the killing was done with machetes, right? So it wasn't just killing people with the gun, with the distance, but altitude, attitude was conflated here. Uh, and so you had, uh, you know, wives, husbands killing their wives, you know, you had clergy killing their congregation, congregation killing their clergy, teachers killing their students. Um, and it's one of the most horrific genocides, you know, in our modern history, because it was done with cutting. Time, there's a good book by a man called John uh, Hatzfeld called Time for Machetes. Um, and so, of course, the Muslims are only like uh, 4 or 5% of the population. What are you supposed to do? In any genocide, what happens is a four group of people emerge. You will have the perpetrators, the, 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 the victims, the bystanders, and then the rescuers. But the rescuing ideal is so key for us. Right, in inspiring courage and resistance in our, in our youth. And that, that's the small, that's a small group, but that's the one, it's like the, the kids in the cave in Surat Al-Kahf, because they resisted, right? They're resisting kind of the kufr of society and they're kind of, they're going off by themselves. And so you have a great mufti of Rwanda, mufti Salih Habisama, mufti of Rwanda in 1994, who gave the message to the Muslims, look, we have a role today. We don't take life 
We don't become complicit in taking life. We don't bystand, watch other people taking life. We rescue and save life. And so in the capital city of Rwanda, you know, in, uh, in Lake Mugasera, the, the Muslims used to go out in the night in canoes in the night because that's where the Hutus used to dump the body of these Tutsis, you know, and they used to take out their bodies to see who's alive and then bury them. And they would say, why would you do that when you're going to get killed for it? And they would then promote the ideas of tadhiya, you know, of self-sacrifice, ithar, you know, that this is what Allah commands in the Quran. And they would say to them, the Mufti is telling them, look, Allah says, relate to them the story of the two sons of Adam, alayhi salam. It's qarraba qurban, both made sacrifice to Allah. One of them said to the brother, uh, I'm going to kill you, right? And they would say, now here you have two sons of Adam, we're two tribes, but we're the same, right? And so, if you stretch your hand to kill me, I'm not going to stretch my hand to kill you. To kill you. I fear Allah, the Lord of the world. And they would generate all these positive things about saving life, rescuing, uh, being compassionate, showing rahmah, mercy to the people, showing Islam. It's amazing that happened. So when the genocide came to an end in, in June, July of that, of that year, um, not a single Muslim was arrested on, on a war crime. We had countless nuns and priests who were arrested for because they would barricade the monasteries. And the, the Rwandan Christians would never go, the old Catholics would, they would never go to a mosque because they would believe stereotyping, prejudice that this is where the devil lives. But it's the only place where the doors were open <laughs> for, the, for the people to go to in the genocide. And Muslim women would give their women their hijab to wear. Do you look like a Muslim? Look, just pretend like you're... And the men will give them the, the tasbih, the rosary beads, just like, just sit there, just look like you're a Muslim, you know? Less chance of you being killed, yeah? And so, and then by, and there's a third great effect is that what happened is that the conversion rates to Islam skyrocketed. Go on Google and just type in Rwanda genocide conversion and you'll see, go on Google images and you'll see article, front page headlines about the amazing growth of Islam. I mean, they were showing Islam without even preaching, but they were showing this is Islam. Islam is saving life, Islam is rescuing, Islam is compassion, and I think it had a very great effect in that society. You know? to bring these narratives, these stories for young people today, it's thinking. inspiring. Because yeah. a lot of us, we, we grew up in a bubble, or this is my Islamic life at home, or you know, in the madrasa, and this is my normal life. Right? And very, very powerful, Zakhlaq. Um, Sheikh Abu Yunus, you, you, you mentioned earlier about um, you know the the and Sahel as well about showing love to children and you know the authority um, not being maybe I was in first generation or second generation households of you know respect the parents um, or you know, a kind of one one way respect yeah you know, or the you know the the, the 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 more strict authority type thinking but I was I mean it sounds it sounds nice to have the two-way authority and, you know, um, to engage young people and children um, to, to get their views on, on, on things. But I was just wondering that um, the, the, the broader themes and broader trends in society about, you know, um, seeing the child also in a, in a uh, or less of, less of the kind of authoritarian and the more kind of uh, equal um, authority matrix between the yeah, child and the... I think perhaps it's been what I said was slightly misunderstood. Yeah. Um, when I talk about the two-way relationship, I don't mean the sharing of, of authority. 
Okay. The parent is always in authority over the child. Yeah. This is a standard thing which is undeniable and is not something to be discussed. This is something mm -hmm. if a child questions it, it's explained to them unequivocally that I'm responsible for you, you're under my responsibility, mm -hmm. I have authority over you, therefore I am in authority over you. I have authority yeah. over you because I'm in authority over you by law and by religion. So, you know, this is the yeah. way this is. If, I don't, if a child can say, I don't want to go to school today, and so you say, fine, if you don't go to school today and you don't want to go to school tomorrow, after a week, um, then of course the school will contact us and if there's no reason why, that we can give to say why you're not at school, then the council will be involved and then the police will come and take you away and you have to go and stay in an orphanage because we'd be regarded to be negligent people because the law of the country is you need an education and if we're not allowing you to go to school and get your education, then we're bad parents. So if you don't want to go to school, that's fine, but in a few weeks you're going to have to find a new family too. <laughs> Okay. So, I have authority over you that's mm -hmm. been given to me by this country and also by Allah. But part of my responsibility is I enable you to become the best you can be. And that's my responsibility towards you and that's what you can question me about. You can question me about my responsibilities towards you, but you can't question my authority to, over you. Mm. And this is the point to make clear, that what we want to do is have the authority but not be questioned about how we're fulfilling our responsibility. And this is, I think, the point that I wanted to make, perhaps it wasn't uh, clear yeah. enough, that the relationship is two-way because we are still to be held accountable. Like when the young man went to the Prophet and complained about his father, you know, the father first of all said, my son doesn't fulfill my rights. So of course the Rasul being the pillar of justice, said, bring your son, I want to hear his side of the story. And he mentioned, he said, he didn't give me a good name, he didn't choose a good mother for me. <laughs> no, subhanAllah, wallahi, he's, subhanallah. This is, he did, when he got married, he didn't choose a good woman to be my mother. Yeah. So think about the depth of this. And he allowed it to go. He said, no, don't be bad to your father. But he said, what about you? Mm. You know, you got married with a woman that wasn't suitable to become a mother. And then when you, you gave a name to your child, you gave a name that was not, didn't give him anything. Um, I was asked a question recently um, by a friend of mine in Qatar. His friend just had a son, may Allah ta'ala put barakah in that. And he wanted to name his child Ilan Yusha. And the brother was questioning whether this was a good name. And you know, first of all, I said, you know, I wrote the message, Alhamdulillah, it's fantastic. The brother's concerned about fulfilling the sunnah, making sure that the name is good. You know, the Rasul emphasized the fact that the names we give our children should be good names. Um, and then he sent a screenshot of what Ilan means. And you know, they can go onto his websites and it's children's names and things. Mm. And he said, origin unknown. Meaning, Is that the meaning of the name? Or the no, so it said it has like the name, origin, <laughs> meaning, okay. like this. So the origin was unknown. Okay. And it had the word in English and then in Arabic. And I thought, yeah, this, this, this isn't an Arabic word. So I just, you know, quickly went onto my Arabic dictionary. Mm, no, this is different derivatives. No, this is certainly not an Arabic word. Origin, unknown. And then it gave some meaning. So, I, you know, my response was, when we give a child a name, that name is an indication of the culture or the religion of the, of the parents. So it's something the child is, it uses to identify with where it's from or, or where it's going to be. Mm. So the Rasul mentioned you choosing a good name. If you give your name to a child, the origin of which is unknown, where are you placing that child? Where, you, where is it associated to? If the meaning is unknown, then what is that child aspiring towards? It's just the sound. So you have named your child a sound. 
you know, this is this is not the appropriate way of, of naming a child. When you name a child, you're you're saying something about yourself. You're, and you're giving your child an identity. This is what the name is. In Arabic, a name is a alam. It's a, it's a, like a flag. Literally, the word the flag is alam. So you're, this is a flag on the child. People recognize where it's from and where it's going. Mm. So um, his rights, the, you know. So the father chose a poor name for the child. Mm. It gave the child a poor start in life. The father chose a bad person to be the mother of the child. Henceforth, the child wasn't sort of like um, trying to argue with the Prophet about decree or anything of the sort. He was simply saying, I can't be held completely accountable for my bad manners when this is the situation I've been brought up in. In a nutshell. That's basically what that was. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that yes, we as, as, as parents, we have complete authority over our children within the boundaries which Allah Ta'ala has given us. And of mm -hmm. course, within the boundaries that this country has permitted. But that doesn't mean we can't be questioned about our fulfilling our responsibilities. And we as parents have to make sure that if we make mistakes, we are the first people to demonstrate the right attitude with our children and apologize. It all comes through learning. You know, you, there's so many times I've said to my, said to my son, uh, my eldest son, I have five children, my eldest son is 13, and he's like, you know, Baba, with me you are like this and like this, but with you, shout, my fourth child who's seven, you're like that and like this. And I said, you know, Yunus, I'm sorry. You know, there wasn't a manual. That, you, know, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that we sort of did a bit of trial and experimentation with you, you know, just please accept my apology, you know, just give him a cuddle and a bit on his hands, I'm really sorry, you know, we understand that perhaps that wasn't the best way of doing things. And what can we do, you know, but this is, if a person is able just to be like that, and say, I'm sorry, you know, just let's just move forward together, then that's the type of ch children we want to have, isn't it? That's the type of character we want them to have. If we can't show that to them, where will they learn it? Mm. Yeah. Uh, Abu Hanifa, you, you, you talked about um, you know, the, the marriage of the parents being the first marriage that young people see and um, you know, the, the problems of marriage breakdown and, and so forth and I just made some notes um, on that about um, the messaging that children are getting vis-a-vis -vis marriage now from outside the home or now being beamed into the home um, particularly on many people's minds is you know the the new kind of understandings of marriage and relationships and what's appropriate, what's normal, what's abnormal, what's inappropriate. The, uh, you know that that's being pushed by campaigners, um, pushing, for example, different gender ideology, different LGBT ideology, and so forth. Um, you're a you're a, a assistant head, I think, in a in a state school. Um, you have many young Muslim students in that area how do you go about kind of marrying this I mean, we've all seen the, the the scare the shocking kind of you know um, books about pushing lgbt ideology to very young children is this something that is just going viral because it's shocking or is it actually you know a thing in in uh, in schools now Oh, it's very much a thing, um, but it, it varies greatly according to areas. Mm -hmm. So there's certain parts of London, for example, if you use London as an example, where Stonewall, which is uh, the government's preferred partner in promoting LGBT ideals, is extremely active. Um, uh, a few years ago, Stoke Newington, uh, which is high concentration Muslim area, mm. where there were Mardi Gras taking place where children were uh, participating in the Mardi Gras, makeshift Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is like a, 
a kind of festival celebrating um, LGBT values where you dress up. You know, I'm sure you can imagine how you dress up. Um, and in other areas, it's much more toned down. So it is a real genuine issue to be dealt with. And first of all, we have to ask ourselves as a Muslim community, you know, are we asleep or something? You know? People like this walk into your area, they walk into your child's school, they do absolutely outrageous stuff, and you're just asleep. You know? But uh, when it comes to, I don't know, other issues, you know, you're so hot, you know, you're so ready to argue, you know, minor issues of differences between Muslims, you know, how you pray, um, you know, some scholarly ikhtilaf, you know, you're really hot on it, you know the aqwal of the scholars, you know, you're ready to, uh, you know, be up for the fight. But somebody is sweeping away your children from under your feet and you're not even engaged with the school, this is unacceptable. What can, what can parents do? What are, well, first uh, one of reason all, is people don't know their rights as parents. Okay, I mean, first of all, if, if, wherever you send your, send your children, you're going to have to be engaged. So if it's to a normal state school or even a Muslim school or if you're homeschooling, whatever, you're going to have to be engaged. And that generally starts off in a positive manner. So don't make your first engagement with the school to be a complaint. You know, make sure that you praise the school for something they're doing, make sure you're there for parents' evenings, make sure you get to know who the movers and shakers are, who the leadership team are, who the heads of years are, make your face known, volunteer for one of their activities. So straight away you're removing the barriers because you know soon one day you're going to have to come in and say no, my child's not going to take part in this. So it's important to build positive bridges. And that's the problem half the time that, you know, to try and get you know, some of our community to volunteer for worthy causes outside of exclusive Islamic charities, it's really difficult to get them motivated to do that. I think as a community, we're still trying to grapple with this because we've, mm. to a large extent, ridden off the back of the liberal, multicultural kind of agenda. Yeah, we're Muslims, we have our rights. So, all right, they're homosexual, they have their rights as well. What are you going to say now? We're struggling to find the language to deal with this issue, and it needs, you know, um, it needs discussion, it needs debate. But I think it's important to differentiate between, yes, it's wrong to attack a person, you know, to bully a person because they identify themselves as homosexual. Okay, that's against the law of the land. Islam does not teach us chaos, where everyone takes the law into their own hands and everyone is meeting out their own justice according to what they feel is right. That, Islam does not allow that. But we have every right to say, no, this is morally abhorrent, this is something against our religion, this is against Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So we don't really have the vocabulary, vocabulary yet to properly deal with the onslaught of the LGBT movement. Yes, okay, yeah, well, we, we disagree with anybody who wants to target a person, hurt a person, you know, abuse a person because they identify themselves as homosexual. And by the way, people identify themselves as homosexual, what do they really mean? You know, what does Islam actually prohibit? Islam prohibits those sexual acts. But a person might be tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with having some feelings yeah, towards the same gender. That might be possible. So there's not enough of a nuanced debate around this issue. Yeah. We don't have the vocabulary yet to deal with it. And generally, we just close our eyes, close our ears, and just hope for the best. What about the, uh, the, the phrase that you mentioned that your mother used to say, that this is something they do, not something... You know, to, to just to have that 
that you know separation that this is your identity because this is at its core it's a matter of a person's worldview and, and, and idea of right and wrong and appropriateness and inappropriateness. Absolutely, it needs to be, this is prohibited, yeah. this is wrong, this is a major sin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed nations because of this. Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do when it, some of your children, and I don't mean this in a theoretical way because I come across it on a daily basis, what, what about when some of your children are saying they're attracted to the same mm -hmm. gender, they're not sure about what they are, we're going to have to have a more nuanced discussion. We're yeah. going to have to get into the issues. And just, ah, uh, Allah, you know, this, that's not going to work for a, lot of, um, for a lot of the youth. That's simply not deep enough. Yeah. And it's so, simply not dealing with a number of issues that Muslim youth are facing themselves. I had a, yeah. Sorry, it's, um, it's interesting how this was discussed uh, over a thousand years ago. So when you study in the books of fiqh, you have something called uh, al-mukhannath. Um, which is someone whose gender is difficult to determine. Mm. So, start off with the hadith, and then we'll explain what the ulama have mentioned about it. There was a person, it's an authentic hadith, there was a person, a man, who was extremely camp, very, very effeminate in his dealings to the extent that the Rasul would allow him to enter upon his wives, and he would sit with Sauda and with Aisha and others, and he would joke with them. And it was understood that he had no passion, uh, no male passion, you know, had, it was gone. <laughs> it completely just uh, devoid of any sense of finding attraction in a woman or anything like that. It was just a very, very camp individual. So the Rasul sallallahu alaihi used to let him enter upon his wives, etc. Until one day, um, it was mentioned about someone seeking marriage, and this person said, well, "You know, there's this woman," um, and then he, he said this particular statement. He said, "She comes with four and leaves with eight. Now, at that time, it was culturally regarded to be beautiful to be more of a, a rounded individual. So coming with four, four layers of fat at the front, and leaving with eight because of the spine, then you see eight rows of fat on the back. So this was a way of explaining that you know, this person was really beautiful. This was one of their mm -hmm. statements. So he said, oh, she comes with four and leaves with eight. <laughs> and when the Messenger heard that, this was like, wait a minute, it's like him saying, she's really fit. Astaghfirullah in a sort of modern sort of language. Mm -hmm. So straight away he expelled that person and commanded his, uh, the women to make hijab from him. So we understand there is this person who is like, though they may have a physical gender, emotionally they are immature. Emotionally there is some impediment. That they are what's now called al-mukhannath. Meaning they're a person that has a physical identity, a biological identity, but intellectually, mentally there is, a, mm. there is an impediment. So they are still regarded to be the gender they are, but someone who is like that, the Rasul mentioned about them praying in between the rows. The men are at the front, the women at the back, and the muhannaf prays in the middle. Because though they may have a physical identity, intellectually they're not really on par with the people. They're not matured in the same way as the people of that same gender. So you, you wouldn't put them with them and you wouldn't put them with mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. But they still have that gender. Now what happens is there's something called al-muhannaf al-mushkil. There is a type of mukhannath that actually has both sexual organs. So the child is born with this and born with that. So the ulama said to determine what the gender is initially, before puberty, see where the urine comes from. Mm -hmm. So you assign the gender to the child based upon whether the urine comes from. If from this, then this, and if from that, then that. And then you wait till maturity comes. See which secondary characteristics occur. 
if the, the male characteristics occur, then if initially you thought the child was a girl, then you switch. And if uh, the secondary characteristics of a woman occur with menstruation, etc., then you know that well, no, this is definitely a woman. Mm -hmm. So this is there in the books of fiqh. We understand, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that and, 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 from, and from the sperm that was omitted in Surah Al-Qiyamah, we made the two mates, dhakar wa untha. There are only two genders. There are only two genders. But in between, there are those people that may have a mental impediment. They have, they're actually born with a mental impediment. Mm -hmm. Or there are those people that are born with, a, if you like to call it a mutation, where they've, some people have six fingers, some people have webs between their fingers, some people have double genitalia. Mm -hmm. Only one of those genitalia is functional. And this is the point. Mm -hmm. So you have this person who has this physical deficiency, a physical handicap or whatever you want to call it. I'm sure there is a, a better way of describing it, excuse my lack of terminology, as we say. In Arabic, we have a very simple way. Um, someone who is be, uh, of a confused gender, mm. if you want to call it that. So you have that present. The issue that we're facing now is gender dysphoria, where a person has this, like, oh, I, I fail to identify myself as a, as a male, um, but this is more cultural, and it's more societal. Absolutely. And there are studies showing that people that have gender dysphoria, first and foremost, it's, it's an illness, and there are higher uh, rates of suicide among those people that are suffering with gender dysphoria. And there are also many studies showing that pe people that had gender dysphoria and changed their gender through medication or having um, breasts taken out, etc., later on in life had great regrets over that. And of course, this is one yeah. of the things which leads into, uh, into suicide rates as well. So what's important to challenge the rhetoric about around gender dysphoria is actually allowing Muslims to know, allowing our children to know Allah Ta'ala has created the male and the female and in between there are people that have either a mental impediment or they've been created slightly differently. But as for a person who feels that they're something else or wants to change which type of gender they have relations with, then these are illnesses from the devil, and these are mental mm -hmm. illnesses, and these are things which need to be dealt with. If a person had anorexia, you wouldn't say, yeah, it's fine, don't worry about the foods. It's fine, yeah, sewing some bone is good, don't worry about it. It's good. You wouldn't praise the person and allow them to continue in, in self-destruction. In self mm -hmm. The same way it's shown that gender dysphoria has lots of problems associated with it, including the higher risk of suicide. So we should have that same compassion with these people as we would have with someone who's anorexic or bulimic. Yeah. Recognize that there are psychological issues. Recognize that treatment is necessary. And understand that mercy and compassion is required. And by no way do we agree with what they're upon. Yeah. Because that's destructive. Hmm. So it's the point of remain compassionate. Uh, just one incident. Um, when I was uh, studying at King's in oh, 2000, 2001, I just started memorizing the Quran at the time, and I was reciting. I was sat in the train on the on the way to university, going into Guy's campus, um, and I was learning. I was trying to memorize. Um, uh, what was it? وَأَثَرَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا فَإِنَّ الْجَحِيمَ هِيَ الْمَأْوَى. So, and as for the one who preferred the life of this world. So the raging fire will be his final abode. And I was memorizing, trying to memorize those ayahs. I sat there bashing my head against it, as you do. And in front of me, there was a, a black man dressed up in a fur coat with long nails and some makeup on. And I looked at him, and I looked back into the, into the Mus'haf. And I looked at him, and I looked back into the Mus'haf. And I thought, 
I only have a short amount of time to memorize these ayat. Allah knows when I first started memorizing the Quran, it took me a long time to do anything. And I was like, okay, I need to do this. But then I looked up and thought, ah. So it so happened that we got off at the same station. So I actually stopped and I you know, said, like, excuse me, I really hope you don't mind you know, me having a conversation with you. But you know, out of sincerity towards humanity, I was just, uh, you know, I was reading this in the Quran and I saw you and I thought, you know, I need to talk to you about this. That, you know, the decisions we make in life are really, really important because they affect our hereafter. And he was like, hey, thank you for talking to me and I really appreciate it. You know, I've got some Muslim friends, you know, they've said the same thing to me as well. And you know, I'm a nightclub owner. And so we had a, sort of a nice chat about things and it was like, you know, this is what you saw, there needs to be that, that connection. You know, when we, we have knowledge, we know things, and the vast majority of mankind are completely ignorant. They just, they're just doing whatever they're doing, they're, they're left without guidance. We know things that they don't know. It's our responsibility to take that knowledge to them yeah. in the good way and in the best of ways. If we don't tell people, you know, in reality, Musa السلام, only knew man, male and female. Adam السلام, only knew male and female. He and Hawa had children, male and female. From the one birth, twins came. From the next birth, twins came. The, the, the son and the daughter, yeah, the, the opposite twins married the opposite twins. Mm. There was one man and, and son and daughter. This is the reality of the human condition. Mm. If we don't share this basic information with people and actually emphasize that it's a reality and it's been true since the onset and the creation of the humankind, then they will just be left to follow their passions and follow the shaitan. So it's you know, important that we take this upon ourselves, that we know things and we should be confident in that what we know is real, even if people like to over-philosophize things and just give new names for things. You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hadith that changing the name of something doesn't change its reality. And this is a principle in Sharia. You know, the Rasul mentioned that, that towards the end of time, people will, will name alcohol with a, dif a different name and they will drink it. Yeah. So the ulama said changing the name does not change the reality. Yeah. So this is something that we need to take with us inshallah.